Thank you for joining me for quite excellent episode number 38, a return to poetry after our brief Thanksgiving break. Today we will be reading the second of two poems that I wanted students to consider together. This time, it is Say It With Your Whole Black Mouth from Denez Smith. I first mentioned Smith a few weeks back as the inspiration for finding in Ars Poetica, although I noted at the time that Smith's poem, titled My Poems, wasn't one I could actually use. This was unfortunate. The poem itself is fantastic, but it has some vulgarity that, despite likely being very engaging to my students, could pit me in a challenging position as an educator. It is hard to know if my freshman students would be able to deal with that kind of language as an academic subject, or if their families would be willing to let them. So, students, if you want to check out Dana Smith's poem, My Poems, you'll have to look it up on your own. And if you want to have a conversation about it, check in with me. Maybe there is some room for that. Thankfully, Smith has many excellent poems. And today's poem from their collection, Homie, is definitely a good one. And I think it speaks well with our poem from last week, Langston Hughes' Harlem, which we need to get to first. Here's the poem. Harlem by Langston Hughes. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat, or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load, or does it explode? So to start, I think it's worth considering that opening line. What does it mean to defer a dream? And one student paraphrased it like this, saying, What happens to a dream that's held back, put off, or set aside? And she said that this kind of deference of a dream, it, it puts that individual, those dreamers, behind everyone else and pushes them farther away from their goals. And there's something about being unable to reach your dreams, the student said. Uh, the dream becomes a burden and it weighs heavily on a person mentally and physically. That when you put off a dream later and later, it makes you feel incomplete, like something's missing. And this is where we get those lines where it describes a dream like a sore. And another student notes that usually when you wake up, your dream does stop. But occasionally, sometimes, you get back into it. You pick up where you left off, even after all that time where it was put off to the side. Which I think is something that is going to matter as we discuss the rest of this poem. Now, most students connected this poem with the activism of the time. Of course, this is part of the context that I set up that goes along with this poem. So that makes sense. Students said that in the context of the poem, the dream here represents racial equality. And another student says that a certain community is not getting what they want and are just being put aside as if they don't matter. A student says that this poem was actually ahead of its time in many ways, but it also it, it seems to recognize the current situation that it's in. And it doesn't expect equality to come at that moment, but instead waits for equality that will come in the future, which I think is both upsetting when we consider what this dream is, and, and disappointing, it, it shows a great deal of insight, I think, for the author, but a despairing kind of insight, I think. Uh, a student notes that there's olfactory imagery being used in here that makes the second stanza fairly unpleasant, and there's maybe a connection between the idea that 
activism like this can become unpleasant, not not just to the people who are involved into it and fighting for it, maybe failing to affect change in some ways, but also to the people on the outside who are witnessing activism and being kind of put off by it, largely as a result of not understanding the message, not getting it, not paying enough attention to learn what it really means. Now, a lot of the discussion of this poem focused on stanza two. A student notes that this is a poem that talks in different analogies, with another saying that it uses analogies like festers like a sore and stink like rotten meat to show how dreadful it is not to dream. Another suggests that this uh, festering like a sore that can then run might be understood to mean a sore is running, like becoming infected, but could also indicate a person that's running away. Another suggested uh, an alternative, that as it festers, it becomes more intense, something that is less able to be ignored. And of course, it's not just these analogies, but imagery. A student says that the, there's imagery of what a dream would look like by just leaving it and giving up on it, which many people do themselves. A couple students actually suggested that this is something that they can kind of relate to, unfortunately. Uh, so we have a poem that speaks to large cultural activism and change, but also the intimate personal struggles that people have with meeting their own goals. The student describes the visual, tactile, and olfactory imagery that's being used to, to give a feeling of like being held back. It creates a realism, like a, like a tactile weight to it. The student says you can almost feel the weight of these dreams on people, on activists, on us, the reader. Some of the students try to make sense of individual lines and similes in here. For example, when a student says that the raisin represents your dream and the sun represents the obstacles life has to offer us, the kind of way down that push against and sometimes affect negatively. A student pointed to this line about the, does it dry up like a raisin in the sun by suggesting that the dream has started to become smaller and smaller because the dream that belief is shrinking and shrinking and withering. And another student notes that there's a lot of questioning going on throughout this poem. Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? Does it fester like a sore? Does it run? All of this. A student says that this poem asks many questions, with every single one after the first question being a possible answer. And I believe, says the student, that the answers to these questions are all yes. The student suggests that when a dream is deferred, there's so many things that can happen. And this brings us into the last stanza, the last line, the last question. Does it explode? Many students ask if whether or not the dream itself is being destroyed. A few suggested that maybe it means to backfire. In either case, the, this, these final lines are important. Uh, a student says that either your dreams shatter and remain a heavy weight on your shoulders, or they explode in such a way that they push you to make change to forcefully take action. Another student says that it makes you doubt yourself more and more, and then suddenly the dream ends up exploding. In this case, this could be being forgotten, because you can no longer push yourself for it anymore once it's been so totally destroyed in this way. For a number of students, this kind of forceful explosion in response is something that's almost bound to happen. A student says that if someone is ignored for a long period of time, it or they are going to want to retaliate. They're going to want to be heard. And then everything just gets out of control from there. And a student points out uh, that the italics of the last line is really signaling the importance of this last line and the change that it might mean. It could mean to blow away anything in its patch while at the same time perishing. Nothing survives the explosion if you're too close, which I think 
or the student thinks, highlights the anger that might be involved in this dream being so long deferred. And so what do we make of this as a whole? Uh, and students, when they talk about the overall meaning of this thing, we have suggestions that this is about a community that feels as if they're being held back by something and wonders what will happen when it is held back for too long without actually having an answer. The student says that when a dream is deferred, anything can happen. So it is best not to let this happen. And I think this makes sense. It's built on it wonderfully by another student who says that the deferral of dreams leads to eventual suffering. These analogies show everyone personally how dreadful it is not to dream. So this is a poem about everyone having a chance to get themselves heard. A student says, the author portrays that the dream is fading more and more, but the need of the dream is shining more and more. And another builds onto this and says, no matter your race or where you come from, it is human right to dream. We must learn to dream together as a whole. And my goodness, if there's a takeaway from this poem, it is that we need to share the dreams of one another. We need to advocate and work for each other's dreams and champion each other's dreams so long as they work together, they build together. And I think all of this is, is a great way of looking at this poem and what it says as a piece of art, as it works as a piece of activism. And I think we're, we're doing a lot of great work with this poem here. Wonderful job, everyone. Now, our next poem is Say It With Your Whole Black Mouth by Danae Smith. The biggest reason I had Smith's poetry in mind for so long is that it, it's the kind of poetry that demands you pay attention to it. And it's a window to see the world from a new perspective. And not just see the world, but question it, understand it, challenge it. This is a poem that could be hurled like a brick. And there's a good reason for that. Poetry is punk rock. It is, and it always has been, about rebellion and shouting back. That doesn't mean that every poem is a protest. Certainly there's no shortage of love poetry and beautiful songs and all that kind of stuff. But clapping back at critics and shouting at the powers that be have been an important part of poetry for ages. In 1732, for example, Alexander Pope wrote the most well-known version of a poem that had been revised for generations by poets. And it is a response to a critic who has insulted poets. And it goes like this. Sir, I admit your general rule that every po poet is a fool. But you yourself may serve to show it that every fool is not a poet. This way of using humor and wit to call the critic foolish, and by the way, incapable of creating his own art, is part of a tradition that connects centuries-old poetry and the rap battles on Versus or the beefs between artists like Eminem and Machine Gun Kelly. And like the earliest hip-hop, N.W.A. and Public Enemy come to mind. Poetry has also been used to criticize governments and culture and people, sometimes by responding to poetry that had come before. A relevant example begins in 1860, when Walt Whitman published a poem titled I hear America singing about how varied and free and hardworking the workers of America were. But of course, in 1860s America, freedom and labor looked very different depending on your race. 65 years later, Langston Hughes, who authored a poem from last week, Harlem, responds with a poem of his own titled I Too, which opens by saying, I too sing America, before he goes on to say that one day, Quote, 
nobody will dare say to me eat in the kitchen. Hughes ends by saying, they'll see how beautiful I am and be ashamed. Black artists throughout this period, called the Harlem Renaissance, used poetry to confront society and government, and it made them targets. The FBI opened up a file on Langston Hughes that that grew to include hundreds of pages. It described him as an alleged poet, who they believed to be working to overthrow America on behalf of foreign governments. Another poet, Claude McKay, whose poem, America, says that the nation, quote, sinks into my throat her tiger's tooth, stealing my breath of life. He was an even greater target. His poetry and politics made the U.S. government so paranoid about him that when he left the country, they put informants in place at U.S. ports of entry so that the FBI could be alerted if he ever came back to America. So we have this big history of protests and fights for equality and skepticism of and from the system of American power. And this gives us the context of our next poem, Say It With Your Whole Black Mouth. You should read it with the history that we've talked about in mind, as well as the last few years of protests over policing, the Black Lives Matter movement. And as you read, I want you to consider the perspective of the speaker and what they are saying. You do not have to agree with the message or the messenger. That's never the expectation of this class or of poetry. But the poem exists to challenge us. So let's be challenged, both by the past and by the present. These, by the way, are our secret passphrases, past and present. You'll notice in this reading that I've recruited a friend for this one. I am again not the best person to give voice to this poem, and my friend Stephen Potts does an excellent job of helping us here. One other quick note. Stephen delivers a version of this poem that is most widely posted online, but poems are often living things until a poet publishes them to a book, and and even then they may continue to tinker with them. The version you're going to see written in our assignment is from the most recent publishing in Homie, which came out this year and features a few revisions, including lines removed from the end. Here's Stephen Potts reading the poem. Say it with your whole black mouth by Danette Smith. Say it with your whole black mouth. I am innocent. And if you are not innocent, say this. I am worthy of forgiveness, of breath after breath. I tell you this. I let blue eyes dress me in guilt walked around stores convinced the very skin of my palm was stolen. And what good has that brought me? Days filled flinching, thinking the sirens were reaching for me? And when the sirens were reaching for me, did I not make peace with God? So many white people are alive today because we know how to control ourselves. How many times have we died on a whim, wielded like gallows in their sun-shy hands? Here, standing in my own body, I say, the next time they murder one of us for the crime of of their imagination, I don't know what I'll do. I did not come to preach of peace, for that is not the hunted's duty. I came here to say what I can't say without my name being added to a list. What my mother fears, I will say. What she wishes to say herself. I came here to say... I can't bring myself to write it down. Sometimes I dream of pulling a red apology from a pig's collared neck and wake up cracking up 
If I dream of setting fire to cul-de-sacs, I wake chained to the bed. I don't like thinking about doing to white folks what white folks have done to us. When I do, can't say, I don't dance. Oh, my people, how long will we reach for God instead of something sharper? My lovely doe with a taste for meat, take the hunter by his hand. The students, be sure to use the words past and present anywhere within your response. You'll notice that this poem uses couplets early on, which we've seen before, but they kind of disappear by the end. In fact, the second half of the poem includes some interesting and inconsistent spacing between stanzas, the, the reductions of lines to only a few words, and varied indentations. There's a lot here for those who'd like to explore structure, and more that I haven't even mentioned. For those students who really want to push themselves, I'll provide a poetic device that is pretty advanced. Enjambment. This is where a sentence in poetry continues from one line to the next, or from one stanza to the next, without any kind of pause. There's no comma or period or similar punctuation that should end the line. This poem enjams many lines, forcing the reader into the stanzas that follow without giving the reader the opportunity to pause. It kind of allows the reader to see the structure of the poem from afar, but without allowing the structure to control the poem itself. I'm not sure what meaning can be made by students willing to explore this idea. Even if students don't explore enjambment, however, they'll need to use double slashes when quoting from multiple stanzas, which is likely to happen here. One quick note about referring to Dennis Smith. While you should be referring to the speaker here, if you refer to Smith, the poet, be sure to use the correct pronouns, as Smith prefers they or their. The speaker is still preferred, and you need to use they and them and their when discussing a speaker whose gender isn't identified in the poem either way. Remember to complete your paragraph-length response by Wednesday, December 2nd, and two replies to the responses of your peers by the Friday that ends the week. Your paragraph-length response should include a tag and make a claim in the opening sentence or two. Then support that claim with short quotations from the poem and commentary that explains how those quotations support your claim. Be sure to read the assignment instructions for a full breakdown of the expectations. If you enjoy this podcast, have suggestions, or would like me to direct an eye toward a particular poem or poetic device, leave a comment on LeidenTeaches.com or on Twitter. I am at LeidenTeaches. The content of this podcast is used as a companion to class instructional activities, and ownership of these texts remain with their stated authors. Thank you for joining me for episode 38 of this podcast. I hope that between now and the next time you hear from me, you discover and savor a few things that you yourself find quite excellent. Excellent.